This is the Bitcoin Made Simple Podcast. Here's your host, Corey Tusick. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. On this week's episode, I interviewed James Lavish. Uh, James, as he says on Twitter, is a reformed hedge fund manager um, who's gotten into Bitcoin. And so I wanted to have him on to talk about that transition from, you know, being a hedge fund manager to now, you know, a Bitcoin maximalist, uh, all pretty recently, too. Um, so he and I talked about that. Uh, got He got his whole story from, you know, going from hockey player that landed him in New York. Um, and then that got him into Wall Street and everything like that. So uh, I thought uh, you guys would enjoy this one. Uh, really great conversation. And I'm uh, looking forward to definitely doing it again. Uh, the sponsors for this episode are... Come on, Corey, find it. Oh, Corey Cutbucks. He's uh, going after the money. Can't find the ad, though. Okay, here we go. Need Bitcoin support? Book a one-on-one video call with a pro on CoinBeast Connect. Ask questions about mining, self-custody, multi-sig, how to run a full node, how to set up the Lightning Network, and how to accept Bitcoin payments. Simply go to coinbeast.com, select a pro, and find a time when you're available. It's that simple. Learning about Bitcoin has never been easier. Uh, and that's also brought to you by Movies Plus. Movies Plus is my streaming platform. Go to mymoviesplus.com or in the app stores, just search for Movies Plus. You shall find it there. Uh, you guys get a th- free 30-day trial. So I, I got it out that time. Usually I've been saying three 30-day trial, but I got you get a free 30-day trial. Um, and uh, yeah, we have, uh, I think the Bitcoin documentaries actually just got delivered to us um so they should be up there by the time you listen to this uh if they're not just keep checking but uh yeah we'll have like uh at least three or four bitcoin documentaries to uh check out and a lot more coming on as we go so i uh, hope you guys check it out and hope you guys enjoy this episode reach out to me via email bitcoin made simple podcast at gmail.com or on twitter at cory underscore tusik thanks all right got it and so uh so we're gonna have the first bitcoin hockey team Um, (laughs) yes we're definitely doing that (laughs) i think i i just i had we had like a pipe burst in our house two old house two years ago and all my hockey equipment got destroyed um so i have i mean my skates my pit jerseys that you know from my playing days and my helmet and stick survived and everything else i need to get that's replaced. all you need right yeah that's really, really that's, all you need especially once you get the beer league you know it's just it's uh, yeah. yeah so that's uh, i got somebody um po- poked me i'm now out on the other side of pittsburgh close to the um the lemieux like complex where uh, they have the practice facility for the penguins yeah yeah there's some adult leagues there and they were like somebody was like hey now you're on this side of town come back out and play you know so i'm 35 and that's the age that mario made his return <laughs> so i'm like you know what like, well yager was still playing until what 40 oh my god yeah i think he was playing at like 43 and i mean he just he just retired in the czech pro leagues that's um, ridiculous. He's he's he's, he's an a, animal. He's a monster, absolute monster. Yeah. So, how intense it is out is it out there? Because I, I've tried, and I've played some uh, adult league, adult league before. Yeah. I did it in Dallas for a while. <laughs> it's like super intense, and I I would just say like this is not the Stanley Cup, guys. I've got to go to work tomorrow. You're like getting yeah. fights. This is crazy. So, um, yeah, well, yeah, it gets a little intense. Like I right after college 
when I graduated, um, somebody was like, Hey, come play adult league, you know? And, and like I mentioned before, it was, you know, D one club and, and it was pretty in, you know, serious competition. Like you're going for a national yeah. championship. You're playing against a lot of guys that, <laughs> yeah. you know, maybe we're on the lower rungs of juniors and stuff like that. Yeah. And so we went straight from that to like playing in this adult league in, um, and like, I stole a puck off a guy and he like threw a jab at me cause he was mad. Like, <laughs> and I just like blew my lid and just started like fighting. And so I kind of had to take a breather. I told my friend, I said, all right, look, I appreciate the invite, but I'm going to, I'm going to let this simmer for a little bit. So I think I took like two years off and then I got back and I was in chill mode. Now I'm like you were, I, you know, I'm kind of afraid, not that I'm saying like, oh, I'm the best hockey player in the world, but like, you know what it's like whenever you played at a somewhat serious level and then you go to beer league and you're like, I don't want to like show these people up yeah. and then get some guy that's like, you know, some like, you know, police officer, like trying to fight me, you know, or yeah, some, like yeah, some punk or yeah, exactly. It, it's, uh, it's, it can be fun. It can totally oh, yeah. be fun. But like you said, yeah, there's, there's a couple of people in there who just, um, they didn't get to where they wanted to be. So they take it out on you there. It's, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but so, I'm, uh, I'm way older. I'm way older than you. So I'm not going to be playing any, uh, any, you know, any beer, any beer league anymore. Not, not, not anymore. Uh-uh. So, I mean, I'll play for the Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin tournament. Yeah. Well, yeah. We, we should we have set something up. I think we should, I think it should be like a, uh, a can-am game or something like that we'll see if we can you know get oh, enough, we've got to have enough Americans. canadian yeah oh, i've yeah. got a few canadians that i know already that play so uh, a couple of yale hockey players that i probably don't want to play against now because they're so much younger than me <laughs> but that'd be fun i think oh, yeah. all for charity it's all for charity right so yeah yeah i think we could definitely set that up in miami if you're going to be at the conference yeah, I'm um, going to be there. Yeah, that'd be so awesome. we we should definitely set that up, and and that would be make. I need to get in better shape too, because because um, we just moved, and one of the first things that my wife packed was our scale, and um, <laughs> so it's the last thing that comes out, right? <laughs> I know, and like I literally just found it, and I we put it in the bathroom, and I was like, whoa, like that. I mean, losing yeah. your scale, and we packed it. It was like a week before Thanksgiving is when it got packed. Oh, and I, I remember thinking at the time, if you ever seen the movie, just friends with Ryan Reynolds, where he yeah. has like a fat suit on at the beginning, <laughs> I was like, this is how I'm going to look at the end of this like holiday season with no scale to like keep myself in check. And, oh, no. <laughs> and the pandemic has not been, I mean, I don't want to talk about the pandemic, but it has not been friendly to people. <laughs> it's just no. been like, you know, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not good. Not good sitting in sitting around the house for months at a time. So yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, and I have to outside of doing that, my I'm taking my boys to um a pit hockey game, and oh, cool. You know they're like six and two, and they're like, you know, the older ones like kind of can't believe. Like he thinks it's like NHL level, which is not. You know, not at all. It's hard but, to like, tell though. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And in his mind, he's like he would go like. I forgot you played for them. Like, that's crazy. You know? And I'm it's like, really it's, cool. not, it's not that. Yeah. I mean, dad's cool, but like, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. so uh, anyway, that's so good. I, I did, you know, looking into your past, I mean, to, before we Uh-oh. get into all the Bitcoin and business stuff. Um, so you mentioned Yale players uh, and you were a Yale hockey player. Um, I was, yeah. <clears throat> and you played from like, probably like me ever since you were a little kid. Um, and, yeah. So and I actually got it, drafted so tell that whole story um 
Yeah. So I, I'm actually an, a, a scrappy kid from upstate New York, not too far, you know, maybe uh, probably seven hours from where you are. And okay. uh, I probably played hockey and, up there a lot. Yeah. Yeah. North, north of Albany. So, um, so that's what you did up there. I mean, I had a, I had a rink in my backyard, just watching the Olympics uh, just, just, you know, makes me remember all those years. Cause now I'm in Vegas and we don't see snow ever. I mean, I can see it in, in the peaks of the mountains, but <laughs> you know, we never get here. So, um, but yeah, so that's what we did. I, I, I played a lot of hockey growing up. Um, and uh, it's funny cause I, I saw one of your, uh, one of the questions that hit that thread that somebody wanted to say, somebody wanted to ask why I played hockey instead of baseball. I mean, like the obvious answer is well, hockey, but um, no, the, the funny thing is, is my dad was a baseball player. He was a, he was a big athlete and he's a, he was a, a first generation college guy, you know, his uh, second generation American from he, he's a hundred percent Russian actually. Um, oh, wow. And so, uh, and he ended up, he ended up playing baseball all the way through and, and tried out for the New York giants before they went to San Francisco. So he wanted me wow. to play baseball. We played baseball a lot growing up. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got to high school, I wasn't that big of a kid, but I, I played catcher. And so uh, I was good, um, good enough to get, to get uh, a little bit of attention from colleges and they started sniffing around and Princeton and Dartmouth were talking to me. And, and I thought, well, this would be incredible being able to use a sport to get into a college. And then, um, and I, maybe I was five foot four or five foot five at the time. And, uh, and then that summer, right before senior year, I shot up. I mean, I, I grew like five inches in less than a year, six, almost six inches. It was crazy. And, so now I was suddenly a six foot, still a skinny kid, high school kid, uh, going to my senior year. And, uh, and then I started getting attention from colleges for hockey and which was great because in all honesty, I was so much better at hockey than I was in baseball. And I mean, baseball, you have to be better than 0.0, like 99.999% of the people in the nation to get to college. Right. And there's something ridiculous. And in hockey, it, it, it wasn't, at least back then, it wasn't quite as uh, competitive. So I was able to stand out and uh, at least, especially as an American. And so, yeah, I played all the way through college. I, I got into Yale. Uh, they don't have scholarships, but I, I, I certainly would not have gotten into Yale without that. I mean, that was my, mm-hmm. that was kind of my hook, you know, something I could offer them for the exchange of an education. So um, and so right before going into my, uh, freshman year of college, I got drafted by Boston Bruins. Um, and so what was that I, like, <laughs> that was crazy because I didn't expect it. I mean, I had, was not on national registry. Uh, I was not, it's a kind of, it's kind of a funny story. I actually was. So when you, when you play that, that level of hockey, um, at least back then you, you train during the summers by playing in these tournaments and in these, uh, specialty leagues. Right. And so I was in this league and I was put in tier two and division two, yet I was heading to a division one school. And so, um, my dad kind of nudged me. He's like, you should be in tier one. And I looked at tier one, they had like Jeremy Roenick and, you know, uh, 
guys like Billy Guerin and Tony Amante and the, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the NHL players from, from Boston that were already playing in the NHL. And so I was like, ah, dad, I, I mean, this is gonna, like, these are really good players. And he said, just try it. So I called up and uh, I got the head of the, the league and I talked to him and, and I petitioned and I said, well, I'm going to division one. And so I should be in this league with the other division one players. And he's like, all right, come out on Thursday and we'll see what you can do. And so, uh, so I went out there and jumped in and on his, the team that he was coaching. Uh, and he said, uh, well, we're going to put you on the line with these two kids. And it was Tony Amonti and uh, Ted Drury. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Ted Drury, his younger brother, Chris. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I was in with, with Ted. Ted's now the, the, uh, the coach of Harvard. And anyway, so Ted was the younger brothers, Chris, right? The avalanche. Yeah. 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 He, he threw the, the world series, uh, little kid, little league world, little league world series. He, he won it as a pitcher and then he won the Stanley cup and all that. But anyways, I was playing with, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to back this all the way up. No, no, no. Go Um, ahead. Uh, Ted was, Ted was there, but I was playing with, uh, I, I super apologize. The, I, I was playing with with uh, Ted Donato, different. D. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. he's the he's the uh, coach of Harvard now. So okay, um, you know it's just so long ago. It's hard for me to remember the details. <laughs> so, anyways, Ted Donato was awesome. He's he's the he becomes the captain of Harvard uh, later on, and but he. I, I go on and uh, and play with him, and he sets me up for literally just sets me up for four goals. I mean, like I score four goals in the game, and it was not me doing it; it was him. After the game, uh, the the head of the league comes up to me. He's like, "That was incredible. I'll see what I can do for you on Saturday." I was like, "Okay, well, maybe I'll get in the league." And what he was talking about, what I realized later, is that when I get home in upstate New York, because this is all in Boston, I get home and I and I get a, a phone call that I've been drafted by the Boston Bruins on that Saturday. <laughs> and I was like, I was shocked, you know? And so, and it was all because of that, uh, because pretty much because Ted Donato set me up for all four goals, you know? And, uh, so it was, it was fun. It was, a, it was a good time. So, um, that's, that's, and that's then, really funny that, uh, yeah. you didn't even know what was happening. Yeah. I know. I, I, I had no clue what was going on. So um, my mom's like, you got drafted by the Boston Bruins. The, the Boston Globe is calling and the, the Herald and they want to talk to you. And I was like, OK. And so but, you know, in hockey, you're drafted so young. I was 18 years old. and You just keep going. And so I went to college. They don't they typically don't take you straight into the, the pros unless you're a, a really big major junior player from uh, from Canada or something. They just mm-hmm. don't take you straight in. You're just not ready. I was nowhere near ready, you know, I was tiny. And so, yeah, so I played at, I played at Yale and I loved it. Uh, I would not change a thing. I would absolutely have have done it. Uh, I actually wrote a thread about, you know, what playing sports at a high level taught me and it was great. And so went all the way through and I, I expected, and this is kind of how we get into my career. I expected at the time I was doing really well. Um, you know, at the time I was, I think I was in the top 10 all time scores of, of Yale and the history of Yale, um, oh, wow. of goal, goal scores. And so of course I had a great center, this kid, Mark Kaufman ended up having the, the record for, uh, all of the, the points at, at Yale at the time. And so, um, 
I expected uh, to be going to Boston to play. And, uh, and it was in the papers, you know, he was going to, uh, the, uh, Harry Sin was going to sign me and one other player. And it, it was, that was the path I was expecting. And then I'm a senior in college. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I had been a, a political science major. I thought maybe I'll go to the FBI and, you know, do some law or something like that. And, uh, and senior year, um, on the U S national team, uh, my coach is going to go coach the Olympics, Tim Taylor. Uh, I'm, I'm drafted by Boston. I'm about to, you know, go to the pros and play in the pros. I'm absolutely at the peak of my game. I've never played as well than at this time. I mean, firing on all cylinders and, uh, and I'm playing against St. Lawrence and it's, and it's right around Christmas time. And uh, I get this pass from behind the net, just a typical breakout pass. I'm going up to the right-hand side of the wing and um and against the boards, but just far enough away from the boards that my body's going to take an impact of a hit. And I might take one step with my left foot. It hits a groove in the ice and I get hit in the knee and I blow out my knee. And Ugh. just like that, it's over everything. Perfectly bad timing. I mean, like it was the worst timing that it could have been. And so, um, my, at the time I, I didn't realize how bad it was. I thought that I had just torn my MCL, but I had torn, I had torn my ACL probably, probably about 80, 85%. Oh, so, wow. but I know I knew it wasn't good. And I tried to rehab. I tried to come back. It, it just wasn't, it wasn't happening. I had to have surgery. Um, and I knew it. Um, but in the meantime, the Boston Bruins insisted that I leave school and come play for the, their minor team, the uh, Providence Bruins. And they wanted me to come play there to kind of prove that I was okay. And to prove that I was serious about playing pro, but I knew that it was, it was going to be a, a stretch. And, uh, and so I went in, I talked to the Yale Dean and I, I said, Hey, here's the situation. So I've got four tests to take. I've, I'm just handing in my senior thesis. Uh, all I have to do is, you know, take these tests and I pass and I'm, I'm done. I have my degree, but you know, there's two months left in school. Boston is asking me to come play with them and I'll, I could leave school and then come back and finish later. And <laughs> it's, he, the Dean kind of leans forward and he goes, so this is Yale university and uh, people don't leave to go play a college or play a pro sport. You know, they just don't do it. So no. <laughs> and so that was, <laughs> I was like, oh, I thought I'd ask, you know, yeah. worth a shot. So you know? worth a shot. All right. So that all gets into, sorry, that was a, kind of a long winding story, but that all gets to how I got to wall street was that there I was a kid. I didn't have any money. I had like huge student loans. Uh, it, it was 1993 going into 1994 there were no jobs to be found anywhere. I mean, at least for not, not for a young kid. And so the only place that um, I could go is uh, was New York city. I had actually been, I had actually been traded, released and picked up by New York Rangers, the New York Rangers. I went and, and I tried out for them. I, I, I tried to live the dream, you know, yeah. I was in, I was out there. I was, I was playing with Mark Messier and, you know, Alexei Kovalov. And it was, it was fun. And, and we, 
and I tried out for them, but they wanted to send me down to the minors. And I was like, this is going to be such a long road. I'm going to have to go have surgery. And, and so, um, I, I just knew it was over. And so I, I left to cut my losses and go start doing whatever I needed to do. Now I'm in New York city now. And so, uh, what do you do if you're a graduate of Yale and you're in New York city and you're surrounded by guys who were history majors now work on wall street, you know, yeah. I was like, well, if they're history majors working on wall street and I'm a political science major, I could probably do it. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. um, so I end up sleeping on friends' couches probably for about six or eight weeks. And they're like, you got, you have got to find a job in an apartment and I'm trying, you know, I'm, I'm talking to people, I'm talking to people and lo and behold, hockey helps some connections and some people I knew and some, uh, some former Yale hockey players and some other players from, uh, from other schools kind of pull me into this, uh, this world. And I get hired by this firm called SG Warburg, which was a British investment bank way, way, way back when this is like before Swiss bank bought them. Then UBS bought them. They, they bought Payne Weber, Dylan Reed. I mean, like it was this whole mm. conglomerate, but this is all before that. And so um, what happened was the, the, the head of the, the desk said, well, you're pretty good at math. And, you know, um, we need somebody on the floor to trade something that's called ADR arbitrage. And so uh, to, to help with that and on the floor as a, as a wire trader. And so ADR arbitrage is where you, you're, you're creating foreign, uh, foreign stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. You know, so you have a, a, a stock that like Galaxo that trades out in England and, or on the London Exchange and you, you can buy it there then translate it with currency and tax and, and uh, kind of put it in a basket and trade it on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. And there's an arbitrage between the two because they're the exact same thing. It's just that one mm -hmm. is trading over here and one's trading over here and you can buy and sell them and make a spread between them and offer it to clients, right? So back then we didn't have spreadsheets. We had a calculator. Ooh. So it was literally <laughs> whoever could calculate it quickly, like fast, you know, the fastest, was the one who was going to get the trade. And so that's what we were doing. And that's how I got my start. I was lit, I was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange trading this crazy uh, arbitrage spread with, you've seen it in, in the movie Wall Street and you know where the guys are running around yelling all over, you know, the papers flying all over the place. And that was my- And that was, that was your life was that sitting was, there that was calculating the numbers. Yeah. And yeah. would you do it in your head mostly or was it as fast as you could type on a calculator? Uh, you know, the, back then you were, you were dealing with eighths, you didn't have pennies yet. So, uh, you could get pretty close with, in your head. Um, mm. so it wasn't, it, the spreads were wide enough that if you missed by a little bit, you were still going to get a spread. So some of them I could do in my head, but, um, you know, when you had the, when you had the currency exchange, uh, on top of it, it got a little bit hairy. So I would use my, I would use my calculator as much yeah. as I could just to be sure, you know, you don't want to make, you don't want to make a million dollar mistake as a kid. So no, no. Yeah. That's a quick <laughs> way for you to get, uh, you know, thrown out. <laughs> yeah. So you were one of the people you were there on wall street every day. How many years did you do that? Where you were on the floor of the stock exchange? Uh, so I was only there for about a year and, and I got, 
I got that opportunity. I got picked up by this, uh, by Travis group. Travis group had an, an internal hedge fund. So this is my first step into hedge funds. Uh, there was a, a trader there, Lori Fink, who was heading up their arbitrage desk. And she said, well, if you do ADR arbitrage, you can do merger arbitrage. It's the same thing. It's just with companies that are going to be bought by another company. You know, So one company's going to be bought by another company and there's an exchange for that. There could be cash, there could be cash and stock, or there could be you know a complicated structure that I won't get into, but it's the same thing. You buy this, you sell this short in the right ratio and you, you annualize it and it gets a little bit more complicated with dividends and borrowing costs and all that, but it's basically the same principle. You buy this, mm-hmm. sell this in the right ratio. And if the merger closes, that spread collapses and you and you collect the arbitrage. So she was like, you could do that definitely. And uh, and so I got hired there and um, and started trading merger arbitrage. So then I traded arbitrage there, mergers and convertible bonds, and then some high yield distress stuff. And, uh, and at the time I was getting married to a, a girl from Texas. And, uh, and so we had an opportunity to go down to, we we were going down to Texas to get married. And so uh, I invited somebody to, to come to the wedding. He said, well, I can't come to the wedding, but you're doing exactly what I do. And I'm leaving the firm I'm leaving. What would you think about moving down to Texas? And I thought, well, I've been in New York city for five years. That's about enough for anybody. And oh, yeah. so I thought, yeah, I, I mean, I, we couldn't save money. It was, it's a psychotic lifestyle. If you can race. make it in New York city, great, great for you. Like that, I have no, nothing against to say, I love going there, but it was too much for me. It was just, it was almost raw. So I was like, yeah, I could, I could use a down, you know, downshift in, in, in lifestyle yeah. you know, or upshift in lifestyle, downshift in, in, in pace. And so, yeah, so I started working for this uh, hedge fund out there called Carlson Capital. And, uh, and I'm just rambling. No, no, know? go for it. So. Yeah, that's, no, that's great. <laughs> it's, I want to, I love it. This is boring. We've got to cut it up because I'm. <laughs> No, no, so, it's not. It's not because I think you know it, all the Bitcoiners kind of have their own journey, um, yeah. you know. And and it's I think somebody coming from the hedge fund world into the Bitcoin space is really interesting. Um, it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. All right, so I go, I I get hired by this uh, this hedge fund to head up their arbitrage trading, and uh, and it grows. That hedge fund grows from like. By the time I got there, I think it was $700 million and it grew to billions of dollars. I mean, like four or $5 billion. By the time I was leaving, my the portfolio I was helping with was like $1.5 billion. It was crazy. Oh, wow. So um, yeah, but that was back in 1998. And so I come into this hedge fund and almost immediately we get hit with the 1998 Russian ruble long-term capital management um, debacle, you know, and I don't know if you remember that because you're you're a lot younger than me. But what happens? What is this firm? And it's it, it's a fascinating story. If you've never if you've never heard it, it there's a book written by Roger Lowenstein, the the Wall Street Journal um, uh, journalist. He he wrote a book called When Genius Failed. And it details what happened in, in that, uh, in that firm. And these guys are smart. I mean, there's a firm in Connecticut called long-term capital management. And they, uh, one of them, um, was the, uh, 
he was in black schools, right? And so um, he's the he's school is the guy who who won the um, the uh, the award for um, the options pricing model, you know. So um, these guys are smart, and so but they did something very stupid, and you'll see me talk about it online repeatedly they did something really stupid and that was levered themselves to the absolute hill they were like nobody really knows how levered they were but it was something over the uh, in the range of 100 plus to one leverage and so and they were doing these really specialized tight arbitrage trades you know interest rate arbitrage where if things moved just a few basis points you could get you can get clipped for a, a large amount. So, and, um, and so something happened where people started hearing that trades were moving against them. And then they realized how much they had uh, at risk and how badly levered they were. And, uh, and the spread started blowing out and everything sold off. Like the whole market sold off and it was a panic. And I can't remember who went in. I think it was, I feel like it was Goldman Sachs who went into the Fed and said, "We've got to, we've got to, we've got to, you know, shore up the markets here because it's going to be bad. It's going to be a bloodbath." So remember, they're doing arbitrage, and all the markets are getting absolutely decimated. Now I'm doing arbitrage, we're doing arbitrage, and our spreads are getting absolutely decimated. They're getting crushed. And but the thing is, the underlying fundamentals hadn't changed. If the if the if the mergers close, uh, if the convertible bonds don't go into default, you know whatever it is, it, as long as the the fundamentals didn't change, which they didn't, then if you stood strong and held your line, then you would be fine. And we did more than that; we added to our positions, and we had an absolutely great year because we took advantage of the fact that you had these huge spreads that had blown out. Well, that's the first, that, that was my first taste though, of the dangers of, of the capital markets and, you know, um, and how, how badly uh, the markets can react to over leverage. So uh, you'll hear Greg Foss talk about this too. We've talked about it at length, the two of us. Um, and that was a, that was a big lesson. So mm-hmm. that was the first one. So you'll see me online all the time, you know, be careful with okay. leverage. You're going to get your face ripped off. So um which is a That's very one. important lesson for a lot of people that get into Bitcoin. They need to continue to learn that, not just learn it once. You know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it just blows my mind that you're gonna you're you're using this 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 underlying um, holding. You know, we'll call it security, even though you know we it, Bitcoin is what it, its own asset class, but we'll just call it a security. You're holding the security, and then you're you're using it as your your basis to lever against and so as that basis moves you're i mean it doesn't have to move that much for you to be in the red and so people continuously um play that game and just get i guess the word on twitter is wrecked right so yeah and it ah, it just it it kills me see I, i mean i know people are getting hurt and it's senseless you know i know the thing about the thing about Bitcoin, what I've learned really quickly, really early on, is that you just have to be patient. You know, just be patient. You're not gonna, you're not going to make a thousand times your money in this 
um, opportunity overnight. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. And if it does happen, then we're, we've got much bigger problems. So um, <laughs> the world's know, falling apart then. <laughs> yeah. We don't want that. So uh, when I get it, when I, when I see it getting compared to other opportunities, that's when I start writing about the risk reward and you've, you know, and I come from, and you're, you're hearing this now, as I tell my story is that I come from a risk management, a risk uh, profile background. Like I look at everything and say, okay, what's the risk here? And mm-hmm. where can I get hurt and how badly? And what's the reward? And is it is the reward worth that risk? You know, is it binary? Is it is you know is it is it attractive? Um, 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 a positive asymmetric risk reward? You'll hear me say that all the time. And so, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the way I look at. I look at the world that way, but when I'm talking, when I'm looking at investments, that's what I'm doing, you know, and we saw it again in the 2000 bubble. Uh, Nobody could have, nobody could have uh, predicted 2001, saw it there, even though that was a total black swan event. Um, We saw it with the housing crisis, black swan. uh, I mean, yeah, because it was a hundred year event, but we saw it coming. Like if you didn't Mm -hmm. see that coming, you know, you were, you were eating and, and um, believing the lies that were being told around you uh, by certain officials that said, everything's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the fact that the fact that Lehman brothers, their, their bonds, their corporate bonds were still rated investment grade a week before Lehman collapsed. And we were in, we were just, dumbfounded that they were, they were, they were still being rated that high. And so now, so go backwards, um, in, in my journey. So, uh, a lot of people ask this. And, and so I say I'm a reformed hedge fund manager. So like a reformed, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all, we also go through reformation. So, um, so, I had an opportunity to start my own hedge fund back that back in 2002 and rates were going up and spreads were going out. And so I thought this is a good time. And, uh, and so I started this hedge fund and it was an arbitrage hedge fund, small, I uh, get, I got seated by a billionaire and, um, and I thought that this was going to be a, a good path. And, you know, about a year and a half in, the rates just rolled over and spreads collapsed. And it was just unfortunate timing just didn't work. And, you know, it, honestly, Corey, it, it took its toll on me. Um, I was about your age at the time. I had two small kids. I had taken on a lot of risk. Um, you know, I had, I, I had the ability to do it, but it, it uh, I mean, it virtually wiped me out financially mm-hmm. because I was, I was completely burned out working 20 hour days. Um, you, you've seen in, on TV, these guys who were sleeping in their offices. I mean, that was me just trying to make sure that I could do everything I could to make this work. And it just wasn't going to work. I was fighting the tape the whole way, you know? Um, okay. So just to give your, your uh, listeners to everybody out there to understand why, why it matters that spreads what I, I, what I just talked about. And here's one of the things that I've realized that I've been, I've been in this business for so long. I, I say things and sometimes I have to take a step back and realize that people don't know what the hell I'm talking about. So I apologize. No, you're so, um, <clears throat> so rates matter because if you can go and buy a bond, okay. For four or 5%, 
six, seven percent, then you know, why would you put your money into a fund that is capturing spreads, an arbitrage spread for the same thing? You wouldn't. You're, you're going to put your money in a fund that's capturing spreads that are bigger than that. So we all know that. And so if you're if you're trading an arbitrage fund, you're not going to squeeze the spreads down to less than Fed funds. You're going to add some sort of multiple multiplier on that, two or three times Fed funds, or it moved to uh, you know LIBOR plus three to five hundred percent, something like that. So you know that you're going to make a spread. Mm-hmm. But when spreads collapse to nothing, there's there's nothing to you know, There's nothing you can offer the people that want to move their money to. Yeah, a you can. What are you going to offer them? Two, three, four percent. Okay, even even if you did that, the problem is the structure of arbitrage is that if you have if you continuously have 40, 50 positions in your portfolio and they're turning over as these events happen or the the mergers close or whatever it is, and you're you're constantly turning these over, right? Well. Over the course of the year, you're going to have four to five that just blow up, that the, mm-hmm. the merger falls apart, whether it's because of financing, the DOJ, or the FTC blocks it, or you know, there's some sort of material adverse change that, that wasn't carved out in the, in the merger agreement. Something's going to happen, and you're, and you're going to have a few blow up. Well, when they blow up, you lose 20, 30, 40, 50% of your capital like that in that trade. So if you have a if you have a two percent position in it, well, you've just lost you know probably half a percent on your portfolio, right? Yeah. So if you're if you're trying to capture three percent for the year, did Siri just cut me off? Sorry. No, no, you're good. Okay, if you're trying to capture two to three percent on the year, three to four percent of the year, and you have four or five of these events happen, well, your spread's completely wiped out. So yeah. that's why it matters to have interest rate um, interest rates over three four percent for you to even have viable arbitrage opportunities. Really, so um, so it didn't work. So I stepped back completely and thought I'm, I need to do something else. Uh, and so I thought about doing. I thought about going back to school, going back to get my MBA. I mean, I even thought about going uh, back to become an architect because I was an artist in school and mm. you know good at math and art. And I thought you know I thought about everything. And, you know, I had taken almost a year off and I had a friend approach me who, uh, who was starting a hedge fund in his family office. It's more than a family office. It's a, it's a a money management firm in Fort Worth, very large, um, now. Uh, and he asked me if I would help him structure, a, a, a hybrid hedge fund in his office. And so, um, so I agreed to do that and was kind of consulting with him for a while. And then he, he said, well, just stay on and, and be my COO as we build this thing. And that's what I did. And I stayed, I've been there for the last 15 plus years, just helping grow this thing. And it's, it's, it's morphed into, uh, focused more on private equity, which has not been my forte as you, as you now know. Uh, and so it's kind of gone a different direction. Um, but and that's fine um, because come all the way down to, to this last year, um, you know, we get hit with the pandemic. I've got two kids that are off in college now and, uh, and I get locked down 
um, in separate cities from my now wife. Uh, and she's, uh, she's an author who lives here in Las Vegas. And so I get locked down in Dallas and she gets locked down in Vegas for a hundred days. We were apart. And oh. so I was like, okay, this is not going to work. So I loaded up my car, drove out here. My kids were off to college and I, I just drove out here uh, and, uh, and we sold the house in Dallas. And so I'm currently um, working on uh, an agreement for, you know, to, to leave that, that series of funds. And so, and so this is, I'm, I'm, I, this is what I'm doing now. Um, so branching out on your own again. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got, I, I've, I've got a, a few opportunities. I've been talking to people. Um, I'm not sure I'm keeping my options wide open, you know? Um, mm -hmm. But so I come here and here, so you asked me about 30 minutes ago, how I got into Bitcoin, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is, this is perfect. This worked exactly how I wanted it to. It's actually, <laughs> it's usually has to be a uh, coached along more. You know, so this is, this has been great. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I'm a storyteller. So, um, so I'm here in Vegas. And this is and at the beginning of the pandemic or like summer. So this is now this is okay. Yes. Yeah, so let me give you context. So now it's, uh, February of 21. Right. So I've been here for a year about almost. And so, um, and so I'm here and I'm telling my son what's going on and he's at Cornell and he's, you know, surrounded by these super smart guys. And, and he's telling me, dad, you've got to start looking at crypto. You have to. So I thought, well, you know, I've looked at it before. It's, I don't know. It's magic a, internet money. Who can, yeah, who can trust that? They're all know? Ponzi schemes, all that. Okay. Yep. Here's, and for your listeners, guys, here's the biggest mistake of my, my career. Okay. Is that I was closed minded. Okay. This is my biggest mistake. I, I, I cannot tell you how many times I've said this to my wife. She's like, you've got to let it go. <laughs> so, um, back in 2016, I had some discretionary capital. I wanted to invest and, uh, I was, I was poking around. I wanted to do something that was a little bit riskier, more venture-like, you know, a little bit, um, further out on the tail than the stuff I'd normally been investing in. I'm in, I'm in traditional private equity and in, you know, large cap, uh, growth and, or have been, uh, I'm in traditional hedge funds, you know, the, the typical stuff. And I wanted to go out a little bit further on the risk curve. And so, I heard about this Bitcoin thing and I thought, God, this thing is really, it, it has staying power. I mean, it's like almost $4,000 now. I couldn't believe it. Yet. I was like, I can't believe this thing. So I go to, uh, I, as you do as an institutional investor, I go and ask the experts in institutional investing, the guys who are covering like the technology and that world and I said, what have you heard about this Bitcoin? Like, what do you know about it? And like across the board, I mean, there was not one person who even gave me a, a, a sniff, except for one guy in my office who, who said he bought a lottery ticket in it, basically, you know, mm -hmm. I was like, every single one across the board said total sham. Do not even like, don't even think about it. There's no underlying fundamentals. It's a Ponzi scheme. You know, it's internet magic, internet money, you know, I mm -hmm. mean, 
everything all you heard. All the things. Yep. All the things. And these guys are, these are smart guys. I mean, these are not dummies, but they're so, in, so entrenched in that world. They couldn't step outside and think about it. So I just missed it. I didn't, I didn't look at it. So now I come full circle. And my son tells me almost five years later, he's like, dad, you have got to look at this Bitcoin, you know, nor in crypto. And I said, well, okay. Anything in particular, he said, I'm, I'm really looking at Ethereum. <clears throat> and so he, you know, he had all the hit the hitters in there, Ethereum and Cardano and whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking at those. And so I bought a little bit of Ethereum and, and, uh, and started digging in and like, I want to say maybe three weeks later, maybe I moved everything I had in Ethereum and Cardano over to Bitcoin. I was like, oh, Jesus, <laughs> it's Whoa. such a mess. Whew, that was close. <laughs> so, you almost made that mistake again. You almost, man, I know. <clears throat> so, yeah. So I started looking at Bitcoin and, you know, it became extraordinarily clear to me um, because I did, a, I, I did due diligence on my own this time around, completely different than I did the first time around. I got onto uh, Twitter and started following people who were clearly intelligent and knowledgeable. And I started watching some YouTube videos and, and, and following some people who were clearly intelligent and, and, and knowledgeable. And I got directed to the right places to get information. One of them, you know, was obviously listening to Michael Saylor talk and he blew my mind equating the, uh, the Bitcoin to, to just pure energy and, and all of that. And that was, that was fascinating to me. I was like, wow, this is just incredible. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'd step back and really think about it. And then I got introduced to Jeff Booth and, uh, I, th- I think I'd listened to him on a podcast. Uh, I wanted, I, I want to say it was, you know, with pomp or something, but mm-hmm. I listened to that podcast three times, twice by myself. And I pulled my wife in and sat her down and she sat there riveted with me for, you know, this is this thing for an hour and like just thinking through it. And, and that was it. I mean, that was it. I thought I have got to, I've got to really dig in deeper here. And so I started buying some more and, um, and got on Bitcoin Twitter and you know how that happens. Oh yeah. (laughs) And I, you know, I, I, (laughs) I just go in and I'm, and I've been there for maybe a couple of weeks and I've got, I don't know, 500 or 700 followers. And they're all writers because of my wife, you know, um, being, she, she's a published author, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, like everything for social media for me up until this point has pretty much been either just sharing some of my photography or, you know, helping her with, with her, um, you know, uh, writing and, and that, that community or actually just tagging along to listen to what they're saying. Cause they're so smart. And so, um, I jump into Bitcoin Twitter and on a Saturday morning, I'm just listening to this conversation about pricing and somebody starts talking about, well, when are the institutional investors coming? And I thought, well, I have some intelligence about that, but you know, mm-hmm. this is interesting. I want to hear what they have to say. And next thing I know, I get pulled up onto stage by the, uh, the two moderators and they said, so we were looking at your, um, your background and your, your bio and it says that 
you're a reformed hedge fund manager. So <laughs> what do you think? I was like, well, here's why hedge funds are, it's taking so long, you know? And so I, um, I mean, immediately overnight, it just, I just start getting connections from everywhere on, on Twitter. And it was awesome. I mean, it was, it was unlike anything that I expected because I thought, you know, Twitter was all just political garbage and, yep. you know, yeah. um, you know what I mean? And so I didn't, I hadn't really seen it as a, as a tool for, for business connection, you know, and for business intelligence or, or intelligence or investing intelligence. I thought it was either fast money or I was ignorant. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, but that's been a, that's been an absolutely great place for me to meet a lot of people. I've met so many people and have uh, been shown a lot of opportunities and, and talking to a lot of people about opportunities now just because of, of Twitter. And I mean, I'm, I met you there. So, yeah. I mean, obviously yeah. that's, that's, that's how it works. It's, it's weird how that has played out because I mean, like I have my, you know, real life friends that like you know, I've known since, you know, school and, you know, grew up with and everything like that. Um, but then all of a sudden, yeah, I've like, I, I mean, I spent a lot of hours this summer on Twitter spaces. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, so now it's like all of a sudden I have like, you know, like my Bitcoin buddies around the world, you know, and like, yeah. um, and it's just, it's kind of crazy. This, this community that, that comes around and it's cool because they keep you in check. Yeah. Like, <laughs> You know, we're yeah, like, they're they're super generous, but also super honest. Oh, they'll yeah. tear you apart they if you will, come in they at will the moment you, check. the moment you want to start, you know, shit coining. They'll they'll jump all over you. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, good reason, it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I that is fair. You know, it is fair. There's a lot of there's a lot of scams out there. I mean, it's yeah. just reality. And the, yeah, unfortunately, the platform the platform allows for that. Yeah. Yeah. They could fix that, but you know, um, one of the things you touched on with the energy part, I think that's one of the things that blew my mind and really connected the dots for me. Cause you know, first it was like, well, it's, you know, backed by nothing. And, you know, so why does it have any value just because people say it has value. And then, um, I kind of had like the Jordan Peterson moment, you know, I'm sure you've seen his reaction whenever he connected the dots that like you could transfer the you know you could monetize the energy that would be wasted somewhere and like move it elsewhere and like you know the energy money light bulb went off and he just was like i'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that and like <sighs> i kind of had that same moment where i was like wait a minute so like so you think when you were hearing michael Saylor talk about the energy aspect that is that something that really clicked for you yeah i mean um it just <sighs> you know you get you get taught classically how the world works. Um, and I didn't take any, we didn't really have hardcore finance classes at, at Yale. Um, we had some econ classes and stuff like that, you know, but, um, uh, I, like one investing class I took, but, um, understanding really just pulling back and understanding how your work is you, you are exerting energy and for that, you're helping create something. And if you have an employer, you're helping create something for them. And they get the lion's share of the benefit for that. But you get, um, in return, you get surety of a, a, you know, a, a constant stream of income or mm-hmm. uh, at least a predictable stream 
unless you get fired or something. But if you're doing yeah. your job, you, you get a predictable stream of income. And that's a trade-off. So you get some safety of, of uh, predictable, predictable income and uh, they get your energy to help make this thing and they get the lion's energy of it or the lion's share of it. But so your, your, your energy was turned into income. Now, the thing was, I never really thought about how inflation was bad. Um, never really entered my mind. I, mm -hmm. it wasn't, it, it, it was the natural way. It's just the way it's always been, whatever for me. It's crazy you know? how that is for all of us. Like, I mean, it, you just literally are like, yeah, prices go up. It is what it is. You know? Yeah, it is what it is. And so, um, and also, I mean, fully transparent, it, it's benefited me. I mm. mean, you know, um, I have investments. It's not, it's been good. And then I realized in, when I was listening to Michael Saylor, how absolutely um, wrong it is, how unfair it is, how, um, how it really hurts people who, who cannot uh, set aside discretionary income for investments it's in buying assets that will actually inflate along with the, with the, the dollar deflating. So um, that's, so when I, when I, heard about that and and Michael went into the transfer of energy into uh into this internet magic money into the bit into bitcoin and how that being anti-inflationary can actually help protect the energy that you've exerted without you having to worry about putting it into the uh into a, a bank account that has a low savings rate that doesn't even cover inflation mm -hmm. that really hit home that really hit home. And it's like, okay. And then it wasn't really, it wasn't as much for us here because most of us are on the right side of the world being in the U S dollar uh, mm -hmm. for better or for worse. I mean, it's just what it is. It's the strongest currency, right? So we've had that benefit, but if you're in Venezuela, you know, um, and you're yeah. in Lebanon, you're in, um, you're in a world of hurt, you're in Cuba, you're in a world of hurt and it's, uh, and so this is something that can actually help you. And then when you think about people here uh, who are sending money back to Mexico, um, you know, uh, using Western Union, you know, I mean, like it costs a lot of money. It takes, takes so much of their energy just to uh, transport it. And so when Michael Saylor said, you can take a billion dollars of Bitcoin and transfer it for just a, a few pennies from here all the way to San Francisco, from New York all the way to San Francisco. And it's in, almost instantaneous. It takes 10 minutes to be verified. And you uh, and it costs you a few pennies. You know, if you wire that, it takes a it's going to take you a long time. It's not going to take mm -hmm. it a day. It's going to take you a few days to transfer to wire that much money. It's going to take, you know over a day, right? Because <clears throat> between the paperwork and the verifications and, and you know, um, the two banks and the, 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 uh, the system. So uh, that's another way. But if you want to do that with gold and he started talking about doing it with gold, it was like, that just sounds absurd, you know? I mean, putting all this stuff on the boat, <laughs> having a, the security, the amount of energy it would cost just to move it, you know? I mean, it's, it's have ridiculous. you seen the movie Tenet? Um, no, I haven't. Uh -uh. It's funny. One of the things that happens in the movie, um, it's a Christopher Nolan movie that um, 
but the uh the guy's like collecting gold bars and like pallets of them and he's like in the middle of the ocean at one point and like there's this huge shipment i remember just sitting there thinking like boy that's so much energy just to get that value now it's like now it's just sitting there and he has to transport it somewhere whereas like with bitcoin you can just do it with words in your head you know like exactly and um exactly yeah it's just uh it, to me it becomes and this actually goes to um what uh daniel prince's question was um but to me it's become like you know and i'm not like a, i'm not a hedge fund manager i'm not in an investment person and also this is not investment advice but um <sighs> but i it just is risk off because the the yeah. simple math of the the percentage of bitcoin that i own um doesn't change unless i sell it or buy more and right. um and so i just uh it's risk off in that aspect in that aspect to me and me and me in me my 30s i basically looked at it as like all right that's my retirement like i you know if i got 30 years so i'm gonna retire like I don't know if social security is going to be there whenever I retire. So like, but I mean, that was my, that was my story. I dumped it all. I, I, you know, took the, the early withdrawal hits and everything like mm-hmm. from whatever little I had saved in 401ks and whatnot. I was like, I'm done. I'm out. And I pushed it all in. Um, and, and so for me, I'm like, okay, yeah, in 30 years, this is definitely protected. Um, but for you, when did the, when did Bitcoin become risk off? Um, well, you- and that's and that's it, right? So, and it is risk off, a hundred percent. And right now, it, it it's not being treated as risk off. It's being seen from with institutional investors as risk on. Period. I mean, that's a that's the way they see it. They see it as a a, a speculative. Um, you know, uh, every single time I say something that sounds anything like a certain word. <laughs> an assistant pops up on my screen asking me what I want. <laughs> that's so funny. Apple's <laughs> killing me. <laughs> well, that's so, what you should. I, I had, I had a laser huddle in a Twitter space last night. I don't know if you've seen him yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, I do like one weekly with uh, uh log scale hosts, those uh, spaces. Yeah. And, um, and I was talking about like all the technology stuff that has us wrapped in, you know, like, like this morning when I got in the car and Google popped up and was like, it'll take you, you know, eight minutes to get to the place you're going. And I was like, like, how do you know that? That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, So like, I I need to, I need to get away from these virtual assistants. Right. Um, Exactly. So, but uh, But anyway, so so, ultimate, yeah. Ultimate risk off. Yeah. So, uh, so um, why do they see it that way? Well, they just see it as a speculative asset right now. Is it going to, it does it have staying power? Is it going, remember that institutional investors, this is relatively new to most of them. Um, Mm -hmm. And they don't see the difference between Bitcoin and Ethereum. They don't see the difference between Ethereum and Solana or whatever, because they accept in market cap. That's all they see Um, because they haven't dug in and done, done the research and they haven't, they haven't uh, investigated and and done the work on why proof of work is different from you know proof of stake and so once i did that i saw how obviously it's completely risk off you know it, there's a finite supply you know it's completely decentralized it's it's immutable 
you know? Um, mm-hmm. So, and it, because it, because those transactions can't be changed, that time chain is, is, uh, is secure and, and etched in granite. Um, it's, it's completely risk off. So until institutional investors realize that, and I mean, broadly realize that and start investing in Bitcoin as a store of value first. And I, I, I understand when Bitcoin maxis get irritated when people compare Bitcoin to digital gold, because mm-hmm. it's so much more than that. That is true. 100% true. But there's going to be a stair step in my mind that you start there and it has to get enough. It has to, uh, it, it has to get enough market value, uh, enough capital into the asset to have a ballast that dampens the volatility. And once it mm-hmm. does that, then it, be, then it goes to the next stage, right? But until then, it, it has to start there. Uh, so I think that this, this everybody says it, this year is when the institutional investors are going to come, but you're seeing it over and over again with you know, JP Morgan offering it to their, their, uh, their high net worth investors, and they're going to open that up, you know, uh, KPMG Canada just added to their balance sheet. Uh, you've got Fidelity's talking about it, putting out papers about it. I'm getting a lot of notes now about Bitcoin from institutional analysts that I'd never seen before. And so does that mean that a, a bunch of capital is coming? Well, I mean, we're in kind of uncertain times here. It's yeah. still coupled to risk on assets. So I don't expect it to just decouple here, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, spontaneously. I don't expect that. It could. It's Bitcoin. Who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm not going to say I can predict anything about this asset. This is, it's, it, it isn't its own beast, but um, I think that's the way it's going to happen. You know, I think yeah. that's, that's, but until, until they see that they're going to continue to use the 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 futures ETF as a hedge, like it's a sloppy, uh, you know, tech and high beta hedge for their technology side of their portfolio. You know, they're going to continue doing that. So mm-hmm. it's just what it is. Yeah. So what? How would you? How would you sell someone? Like if you're, I mean, I'm sure you talk to you know people, colleagues of yours that mm-hmm. um, that don't get it yet. And how do you, yeah. how do you cr- try and cross that barrier with them? Well, I mean, the easiest, the easiest one is to explain how it's finite and how it's decentralized and how, uh, you know, it, it's uh, completely, completely immutable. Once they get that and they see how it's different than the other uh, cryptocurrencies, that's when they see how it can be, uh, you know, digital gold. Mm-hmm. And, what, you know, just using that analogy is the easiest one to get them yeah. there. And then they say, well, how do you know what the price is going to be then? And what, um, you know, what, what, how do you, how do you value it? And it's, you have to use the, you know, it's, there's, there's two kinds of things I use. It's the total addressable market. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you think that we've got what, $137 million worth of bonds, $117 million or trillion, of the bonds, 117 trillion of, of stocks, 300 trillion dollars worth of, um, of of real estate, 25 trillion dollars worth of art and collectibles, 
10 trillion dollars worth of gold it's pretty easy to see that at, at you know 1% allocation to bitcoin that you're getting upwards of the range of of 330 $350,000 per coin right so mm-hmm. just the math of that you've seen the math on my mm-hmm. uh, threads before so um that's the first thing is okay this is what when institutional investors understand what this asset is when they when they finally really understand what it is and how it can protect their capital especially in uh in an environment with high inflation that that is very difficult to, to control well this becomes the ultimate asset to protect your capital it's not bonds it's not stocks it's this and so it's obviously not gold i mean gold is yeah. still sitting at 1800 which is just wild to me, but, um, so that's the first thing. And then I start talking about the, because being a risk guy, I've always looked at, looked at things kind of in an event driven, uh, lens. Mm -hmm. Right. So I I look at that event driven probability analysis and it, it, you know, the, the simple way to, to do it. And, uh, again, Greg Foss and I have talked about this a lot because we, we look at the same way when you look at the price, you just, in your mind, you think, well, okay, it's right now it's at $45,000. Um, I think it's ultimately going to a million. Um, I think you froze. Oh, you no. still there? Okay. Oh so, yeah. 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 So sorry, I was just right entranced now, because I'm I'm following you. And with the I, I love too with the anytime Foss talks about the risk chair. Did you ever see somebody the, there's a meme somebody posted and said this is the risk chair that Foss was talking about? And it was a chair that didn't have a seat and it was just a pole. <laughs> that's, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, it's pretty yeah, pretty but, accurate. That's a good that's a good meme. So um yeah, so just the, the event driven probability, you know, I look at it kind of, it's easiest to do it in a binary way. I have different calculations I can use on it just to get an idea, but you know, bottom line is right now it's at $45,000. Well, we'll, we'll use Mm $45,000. Who knows? I haven't looked at it today, but if you figure, okay, we think that it's going to get 3% of the assets of the world. Eventually that's a million dollars per coin. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So 7 trillion, 21 trillion, you know, roughly. Um, so the risk re- reward is, you know, you've got, it goes to zero, which yeah. I think is unlikely, but let's say it goes to zero or it goes to a million. Well, right now the market is, is pricing in that it's got a 4.5% probability of going to a million and a 95 and a half percent probability of going to zero. That's what it's pricing right now. I get a lot of people that come into my threads and say, yeah, but you're not using cost of capital and, you know, um, you, you're not attaching, uh, you know, an, an interest rate uh, because for the forwards and it doesn't matter because the mm-hmm. real rate of the real rate of return right now is negative. So, I mean, you could look at it and say, maybe the probability is even worse. So anyways, because there's no time value. We have no time value right now right? Mm-hmm. You have to get your assets out the door. You can't sit on them. They're just, they just, they melt away in your, in your savings. Melting account. ice so cube. It's a melting ice cube. So, so when I do those things and I start walking through those, you know, those steps that that's what resonates with them because it's their language. And that's when they, understand, yeah, I, I can see what you're saying. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. That that's starting to make sense. And then I hand them off to the Bitcoin standard and, you know, by safety and, uh, and Jeff Booth's the price of tomorrow, 
And yeah. those two books usually resonate with them because they're like, okay, I, I see what you're saying. So I haven't talked to a lot of, uh, of hedge fund managers and, and people in that world who have really gotten it yet. Uh, but there are a few, there are a few that I do talk to now. Um, and uh, smart guys, really smart guys. And once they got it, they're like, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing even compares to it. So they yeah. get it. Yeah. That's, that's that moment whenever it happens. I mean, cause I owned, of course, off the bat, I was like, well, I have to have a little bit of Ethereum. Um, and then, um, and then you realize you're like, whoa, I mean, it really is like, getting plugged into the matrix or like unplugged from the matrix maybe is a better uh, analogy. And you're just like, Whoa, this is a uh, completely different than I thought yeah. it was. And I, I think that eventually they will look at it. It ultimately has to become the ultimate risk off asset. Like I don't, for me and like people like us, it's hard for us to not understand how people don't think that way right now. Yeah. But yeah. I, how far do you think, I mean, you know, prognostications are, you know, not worth their weight and, um, you know, salt. So, but what do you think it's going to take years for it to become a, a regard, a regarded as a risk off asset, you know, like where people are, you know, okay, we have our Bitcoin treasury. I mean, like you said, KPMG just put it on their balance sheet. So Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe we're closer than we, than I think, but, um, I I don't know. know. I, I kind of, I think it has to do with, uh, just how much money is in the system, in the network. And I, I feel like it's going to be more like, it, it's going to have to be like half a million dollars per coin for people to say, okay, it's not going anywhere. You yeah. know, I mean, a hundred thousand dollars is going to be, that's going to be a big wake up call when it, mm-hmm. when it jump when it goes over a hundred thousand dollars, it's going to be a big wake up call to institutional investors. But remember institutional investors, they have allocations, right? So they've got a, oh, millions or billions of dollars, hundreds of millions or, or tens of billions of dollars, they have to allocate to investments. And so if they look at their portfolio and say, okay, I've got, I've got a billion dollar portfolio and I need a 1% investment in something that's $10 million. And that's what they're thinking. And they look mm-hmm. at the, the price of whatever it is and they buy a certain portion of it Maybe they trade it at you know and and try to average in or something, but they're buying it at the price that they've determined they want to start buying at. And for them, they don't care if it's one hundred and two thousand dollars or one hundred and twenty-two thousand dollars. It's like it doesn't matter. Yeah. If they think it's going higher, they don't really care. It's not that they're not price sensitive. It's just that they're much less price sensitive than the individual investors looking at it every single minute and thinking, yeah. Should I buy it forty five thousand three hundred or forty five thousand three hundred twenty? Like yeah. that's like to 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 them, it's like completely in, inconsequential. If they're buying it forty or fifty five, it's like okay, well, I mean, it's it's around here, you know. Yeah, and it's... it doesn't. I'm not saying that they're not smart. It's just that it, it they're 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 looking at at allocating assets. That's what they're looking at. They're not looking at it. Just kind of moving pieces around, you know, on like a board, you know, like yeah, kind almost, of filling gaps, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, so it doesn't so, matter what the pieces are to them. No. Like, okay, so I think I that once it, here. right, I, I believe that once it gets over a hundred thousand dollars, that there's going to be a little bit of institutional FOMO in there. I think they're mm-hmm. going to go, "Oh God, yeah, now it's there." You know, and it'll probably run and then come all the way back down. And then run. It's what Bitcoin does. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, I've learned my lesson. You know, early on. Um, I mean, I think it was probably like this time last year. 
where I was like, it's definitely like, no doubt hundred K like it's going to be very soon. Um, and, uh, yeah, I got out over my skis and was as far as, you know, I don't, I don't lever myself or anything like that. Um, and risk, put myself in a risky position, but as far as talking about it, you know, I was, I was a genius because, you know, (laughs) I came in in, uh, spring of 2020 and went all in and I was, I was a genius. So, uh, everything, yeah, exactly. It all was going correct. And then, you know, all of a sudden, the the, I I experienced my first correction and I was like, Whoa, this is different. And then, um, so I kind of like shut up then. And I was like, I'm going to just sit here and watch this play out. And then whenever it got back to the sixties in the fall and everybody was like, Whoa, um, I was like, I'm going to hold on here and hold my breath and see what happens. And just going to stay quiet. Yeah. Just get numb to it, you know? And, and it's funny because I'm actually going to talk about this with, I'm going to do, um, if you're hearing this and you're, this is the episode after, but I'm going to just have a, cause I've taken like a four week hiatus with everything that's gone on in my life. And, um, and, yeah, uh, sorry. Yeah. And I, and I, I think there's some value in Bitcoin helping you manage the ups and downs of life. You know what I mean? Like where it's just, it's like life can be volatile, you know, just like the price of Bitcoin. And if you get to the point where like you're zooming out, I I don't know. It's just, I feel like it's a good life lesson for people to be able to zoom out and, and not get so obsessed with the price. And the moment you're obsessed with the price, that means you're focused on the wrong thing. That means you're probably levered. You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. Or you just have the wrong allocation or something. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I can't, you know, and that's, I have, I have to be really careful what I say. I, I, I don't want to give any individual advice to anybody. I can't, you know, you have to mm-hmm. know what each person, but for somebody to have um, 40% or 50% allocation, and if they're 23, I mean, that's your risk capital. That's fine. It's whatever. You know, you don't have any kids. You, you've got enough money in the bank to pay your rent, whatever. But if you're my age and you've got 80 to 90% and it's like, dude, I'm... <laughs> you, you got two kids in college, you know? You're... Yeah. I think I, I just wouldn't feel comfortable with it. It's not for yeah. me. You know, maybe it is for some other people and they just feel like I'm fine. If I lose it all, who cares? I'm like, okay, well, um, not yeah. for me, you know, yeah. it's just different. So, but that's yeah. fine. That's fine. There, yeah. I, I have nothing against all for it. If you, if you're, if that's, if you have the risk tolerance and you don't have to worry about it, great, you know, no big deal. So, but that's where I think mining, I think mining will help kind of take off some of the, you're still, you're doing right by Bitcoin, you're in Bitcoin, um, but uh, you're, it's a good savings engine. You know what I mean? Like I actually, I look at it this way, like people were, you know, let's just say, for example, for simple math sake, say I own 10 grand on my car and it's like, I'm looking at my monthly overhead and like, oh, I could bring my monthly overhead down by 500 bucks a month. If I just take this 10 grand and pay off the car. Um, but you could take that 10 grand and buy an ASIC that's going to kick off maybe $400 in profit a month. So it's like, I don't know. Maybe that's, yeah. It's like, maybe that's the smarter done the math. (laughs) Oh yeah. 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 I've gotten, I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm, uh, my biggest question is if I can, uh, well, if I should buy it from 
the place I want to buy it from, it's a little bit of a better price, but it could get, you know, it has to cross borders. Right, 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 right. Have you gotten into mining at all or? No, I'm, I've been looking at it for the last few months. Um, I, my prediction is yes, I will. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's just, I'm trying to figure out the right spot and, uh, and the the right situation. I'm not going to be able to, I can't do it here. I have to have it hosted. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's my can't do it in challenge. It's not going to happen here. Not right now. <laughs> yeah. So then the energy costing to the house is just not going to work, but there are other ways. Um, so um, I am, yeah. my, my answer is yes, I will. It's a question of timing. Yeah. So, yeah, and I, I'm right. like you, I mean, it's good. You know, the thing about mining is, and I, I did see somebody ask a question about mining stocks. I can't talk about individual stocks. It's just, I can't do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still, because I'm still employed SEC, all that. I just can't. But yeah. what I will say is that, you know, look, Valkyrie just um, had their mining ETF approved. Uh, and the miners, I mean, they have, they, it's, it's clear that there's a ton of capital going into this. Uh, Intel just, just announced they have their ASIC chip coming out. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, uh, there's just, there's a lot of capital going to these, these public miners. The, the interesting thing about it is that, like you said, you can get some, uh, you can get some recurring income. Uh, mm-hmm. It's sem- semi passive. You don't really have to be doing much with it. Uh, you, I mean, you have to stay on top of the cash flows and the taxes and all that. But, semi-passive and um, you have, you have an embedded call option in there, right? So you, you can sell calls uh, and still have somewhat of a call option in there. You sell out of the money calls and you own, you're owning the underlying as it comes in, then you can, now I haven't done this. I haven't, I've got to do the work on it, but you can capture some, some upside, um, Mm -hmm you know, between the time you mine it, the time that it goes to that price, or you could just capture that premium that you sold the call for if it doesn't and, you know, um, dampen a little bit of your downside if there's volatility in the price. So um, there's a, there, it's an interesting, really interesting way to invest in Bitcoin. And if you find yourself, uh, you find yourself making income elsewhere that you don't need that income, well, then you can just be stacking coins, you know, you yeah. just start stacking sats along the way. So, and that's a, and there's your upside, upside option, ultimate upside optionality right there. Oh so. yeah. I mean, as, as crazy as it sounds, I'm like in my head trying to figure out how I can use mining to, you know, cover my monthly overhead and then everything I make income wise gets stacked, you know, mm-hmm. and like, it's just, I mean, as, as my wife knows, I'm just crazy like that. Like when I get into something, I get all in <laughs> and um, into Bitcoin, yeah. like it was like, boom. And now, like I mentioned mining and she's like, I mean, because we moved where we moved, we've got acres of land and we've got our own water supply. We've got um, we potentially have cheap energy underneath us. I mean, really? it's there and I don't think I can tap directly into it, um, but you know, I'm working with the energy company that can, and I'm trying to talk to them, like see what they're going to pay royalty wise. And then I'm going to say, Hey, well, how about this? You know, what if I yeah. uh, load you up with some ASICs and, 
and we start going, you know? Um, yeah. So I'm like, I'm thinking of all these things and I told her, we can heat the house with it, you know, all that stuff. And she's just like, here's you the, definitely here's the, the ha- next thing. Heat the house with ASICs. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm going to get like three or four ASICs down in the, by the boiler and just tie it in. <laughs> like we could tie right. it into the pool heating system, all that kind of oh stuff. Oh my God. Like, seriously. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Good. Well, look, I, I appreciate you coming on. I know we went a little long here, but uh, where can people uh, find you? And, and uh, you know, also people probably don't know this, but that is you on YouTube, um, your that photography channel. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I actually, uh, I have a passion for photography. And, you know, somebody asked me, they, they also asked what drives me. And I just, I love learning. And so, um, and I, I really, really, really like taking complicated concepts and, and making, simplifying them for people and teaching them and empowering them. I love that so much. So, um, so I did that in photography a little bit. Uh, I started learning and I realized people are so confused. This is, it's a difficult thing to learn out of the gates. It's just confusing. So I made some videos to, to help people. And so that was one thing. And so, yeah, I've got, if you want to see my photos, I'll, I'll start posting more as I, as I get out. But, um, I, 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 just post things on Instagram, uh, James lavish. And, um, and then obviously as far as this world's concerned, um, uh, obviously James lavish on Twitter, just at James lavish. And, uh, and then I've got a newsletter that I'm, that I'm ramping up that I'm going to do the same thing. Just take a, a, a concept that's, uh, that's complicated and, and simplify it for people so they can understand it a little bit better just in layman's terms because mm-hmm. we talk in we talk in these uh these these terms so often don't realize like i was saying earlier in the in in the discussion that we don't realize that we're just we're talking right past people without without um giving them a moment to catch up so that's kind of the mm-hmm. the point of it so yep that's it and yeah. i appreciate you having me on here and yeah. uh, sorry for rambling so much, but <laughs> no, it was great. It was great. And we'll have to do it yeah. again sometime. And yeah, and maybe I'll be able to hook you into a Twitter space. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. And, uh, and, and then we'll have the hockey. Uh, we'll have to start organizing some kind of, you know, charity hockey event. Um, love it. And I'm going to have to go start skating a little bit more <laughs> so that I'm not like out there fumbling around and look like a, a total noob. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be out there with you, man. <laughs> awesome. Well, James, th- thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.